So what I thought I'd do is talk about the ones, and I was wondering if there were any ones who would be willing to come up and uh, grace us with your presence. Because otherwise we'll just have to gossip about them. <laughs> Don't really have any ones, huh? <laughs> We're off to a good start. <laughs> well, then uh, we'll just gossip about them. And think about any ones that you might know in your life. There might be some things that you could add from your observations or from your experiences. Within the core of Enneagram style number one, there's a, a tendency to embrace absolutes and have a preoccupation with order and sometimes that takes the form of being focused on the rules and wanting to have a certain kind of uh, uh, mental and emotional certainty about uh, procedure and a, a kind of uh, focus that on the high side yields benefits like uh, the ability to dispassionately judge and to evaluate. Um, we have in the United States um, a magazine called Consumer Reports. As far as I can tell, the entire magazine is populated with ones. It's like only ones work for it. They're famous for never taking advertising, uh, being uncorruptible, because uh, when they evaluate automobiles, for instance, uh, uh, nefarious agents from the auto industry are always trying to sneak up on them and bribe them and things like that, and they never take bribes. And the entire enterprise is towards determining what is the best, uh, the best value for the consumer, and to evaluate. And it's the high side of one to me is the uh, capacity to evaluate and to discriminate and to discern. And you see this sometimes in uh, the behavior of judges, for instance, who are very professional and very good at what they do. They have a particular ability to sort out complex moral, morally ambiguous situations and to come to some sort of decision based on their, their application of the law. And it's quite a, um, quite a capacity, it's quite a skill capacity. The high side of science is like this too, acquiring evidence and uh, really applying the rules of science and being very sort of strict and stubbornly disciplined in order to find a result that is th then useful as well as uh, uh, adhering to the rules of science. If the same capacity, the same core strategy, the same core attitude is expressed unhealthily or expressed as a defense or expressed uh, in a quote-unquote fixated sort of way, then the person, it's almost like the the high side of it mutates into a, a bastard cousin version of the original resource. And in that mutation then the person becomes preoccupied with rules in a more compulsive sort of way, in a more fixed sort of way where they, things have to go a certain way, they have to be, uh, um, there are uh, uh, ways that we should all, all behave. The person has a tendency to start to look for um, things that are out of place, things that are mistaken. When I was a kid, there used to be this magazine that we would get in school that had this little cartoon in the back of it each month, and it was called, What's Wrong With This Picture? And it was a scholastic review, I believe it was called. And they'd, they'd always show some pastoral picture or something, something that looked sort of normal, you know, like a suburban neighborhood or something like that. And then there'd be a dog flying upside down and backwards over the, and there, there'd be something out of kilter Within the, within the picture. And ones have a particular capacity to notice the thing that's wrong with the picture and to pick it out and to almost notice that first. 
before they notice the rest of it, to notice what's out of, out of whack. And on the, on the high side, this could be, uh, for instance, a very good quality in somebody who went into an organization and evaluated how it was running. This is a different quality from what sixes have, which is more of a predictive quality, where sixes not, don't necessarily see what's wrong now, they see what will go wrong in the future. And so then that, that's, that's truly more like what they call troubleshooting, where you're, you're look, taking the long view and you're figuring out why this won't work six months from now. But ones are very good at a kind of present capacity to come in and look and see what's out of whack and what needs to correcting. And partially this is because they have the capacity to see reality as it is and then compare it to an ideal. It's usually an unconscious visual image of how things should be. The joke that I tell, or the story that I tell in workshops is about um, being, being on a train in Switzerland and having a uh, Swiss train conductor give me a scolding for the way that I treated the money. Because I, the Swiss came out about 10 years ago, they came out with beautiful new holographic money. And it was all in these very beautiful colors. And I had run for the train one day and had been in a hurry and I'd mashed my money into my pocket. And this was right after the new money had come out. And so I'm sitting there on the train and the conductor comes up and I buy the ticket from the conductor, which you can do for a, a slightly inflated price. And I handed him a 20 franc note that was crumpled. Uh, it was this beautiful new money, but it was crumpled. And the man gave me a lecture. Says, Look at how you treat this good Swiss money. What's the matter with you? I said, well, gee, I was in a hurry. I was running for the train. He said, that's no excuse. You should organize your life better. <laughs> All rules and no mercy. And what he, was, what he was very likely doing when he had this outburst was comparing the crumpled, wadded up franc note that I handed him, 20 franc note, with a pristine, uh, fresh off the press, 20 franc note that he saw in his mind. And he compared the two and then he blamed reality for not living up to the ideal. And, on the, and then on the low side of one, this is more what you get into, is you have an ideal image of how you should be, other people should be, things should be, and then you get caught on that, because they have to be that way. You get into rigidity, you get into uh, a compulsive drive to organize things that way in order to assuage your own anxieties, in order to, to limit and contain and um, feel like you're in control. It's an unconscious version of being in control. Um, an illusory one, but they're all illusions within all the styles. All of them control in a different way. There's a saying, logic is the art of going wrong with confidence. And this is uh, something that, uh, that ones are particularly prone to, where they're very, they get very caught in a, a wrong-headed enterprise that nevertheless sounds logical when they say it to themselves within their own internal dialogue. Ones can also be self-critical and have a little critic sitting on their shoulder talking to them all day long about what they're doing wrong, what should be, what they're, how they should improve themselves, how they should improve others, and so on. And this is more in the compulsive defensive end of it. And then one has a connection to both the high and low side of seven. And on the high side, it really helps with the self-critical tendencies and the the tendency towards rigidity and being over-focused on the rules and over-focused on procedure and detail. With the high side, it brings a certain kind of playfulness and more greater flexibility 
and a kind of uh, uh, cheerfulness. Uh, there are some ones who are very seven-ish and they often have happy genes. They often have a kind of uh, light-hearted approach to things and a, uh, a, a feeling about themselves in the world that is uh, playful. And there can be a, 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 a greater amount of humor sometimes and greater social facility. The person can be a, a uh, they can make jokes, they can have, a, they can enjoy palaver and bantering with people, stuff like that. They can also um, embrace paradox in some way that is somewhat healing to the, the central tendencies of their style. In other words, if, if I'm in, in a more rigid mode and I'm a one, w one of the things I'm grasping for is certainty. And a lot of times that involves distorted thinking then. You have to, you impose on the world a kind of order that is uh, too narrow and, too, and not amb not, doesn't tolerate ambiguity, doesn't really allow for all the contradictory ways that you can look at a given circumstance or look at a given human enterprise or something like that. And so with the, the connection to seven, you get a little looser in your thinking. And you can, you can see how things can be two things at once. Um, you can, you can play with imagery in your mind's eye and it often brings a more visual quality. Within their core style, ones are usually more auditory and kinesthetic and less consciously visual. They may have, they have the capacity to visualize, everybody does, but they may not see their own internal imagery. Like when my train conductor was hectoring me, one, he probably saw this image in his mind's eye, but it was probably very much out of consciousness. And usually what ones will report being conscious of is talking to themselves and getting feelings, talking to themselves and getting feelings, and less so the visual. And so with the connection to seven, very seven-ish ones, they're often more explicitly visual and may have an attraction even to, say, the visual arts or something like that, or more of a fashion sense in a way, um, be more conscious of how they dress or something like that, you know, a little image conscious, especially if they have a two-wing. and. There is a, uh, a way that they can think where they jump around in their mind. It's a, you know, the sevens have great associative capacities. The capacity to associate, associate one thing with another and to think eclectically and to think outside of the box, as they're always calling it. Or think like Leonardo. No, it, yeah, like Leon, there's a whole book or a series of books now about how to think like Leonardo da Vinci. Da Vinci was a seven who was famously brilliant, famously eclectic, famously good at a lot of things, and also famous for never completing what he started, <laughs> or, or virtually, virtually not. And so all life is a series of incompletes. But that ability to think in a kind of uh, unconstrained way and to brainstorm. A lot of times ones will be very good with the critical faculty and the realistic analytical faculty, but where they'll need work is in the capacity to brainstorm and just let your mind rip, you know, just let yourself go and just come up with ideas without any kind of consequence. In other words, when ones are in the trance of their style, it's like they don't know what a first draft is. The tendency is to want to get it right the first time and do everything to the letter and be very meticulous. But a lot of times, you need first, before you get to that phase, to be mentally free and maybe even emotionally free and allow yourself free reign to just fantasize and to come up with options and choices and plans and possibilities. And this connection to seven helps on the high side. It also bring, can bring a kind of sensuality and a kind of uh, 
an attitude where the person wants to go out and play, where they're interested in the enjoying life in some ways, whereas in the, in the basic fix of their style, they might, not, they might not let themselves do it. It could be a beautiful spring day and they look outside and uh, you know, the weather beckons and the light, the light is playing across things and it's, a, you know, it's limpid and exquisite and the temperature in the, is just right and they say to themselves, okay, I should do my taxes. Well, uh, it, when they're more connected to the high side of seven, they figure out a way to let themselves take some time off. When ones are in the trance of their style or caught in the fix of their style, they have what we call an NLP, a negative motivation strategy, which basically in a nutshell is you make yourself feel so bad that you want to change. And so you criticize yourself, you dump on yourself, you accuse yourself of things, and then you feel bad, and then this is thought to lead to improved behavior next time. When ones are more connected to the high side of seven, they have more of a tendency to have a positive motivation strategy. One woman that I talked to said, I hold little carrots out in front of myself. For instance, if I get through a stack of unpleasant paperwork, then I can leave the office early and go to the movies. And there's a tendency to motivate yourself with carrots rather than with sticks. And so it works rather well and it's kind of a healthy thing because the negative motivation strategy can be a source of real pain for ones. It can be really uncomfortable for themselves and then of course they offer it to other people as their gift to the world and then it has social ramifications. <laughs> and then there's also with the high side of seven a tendency within the flexible thinking to have a more creative response to circumstances. In other words, if somebody's in the fix of the style, they'll be most likely asking, well, what is the correct way to proceed? What should I do? Versus if somebody is more seven-ish, they might ask themselves, what do I want? How do I make the most of this? How is there a way to convert what looks like a defeat into a success? How can we just usefully proceed without worrying too much about what's correct, what's the right way to do it. It's just what would be the most effective way to do it. So it doesn't represent a lack of ethics, it just represents greater flexibility. And then when ones are less healthy within this connection from one to seven, they can sometimes polarize against their own sevenness and begin to condemn it in other people, say for instance. They have an inner latent connection to seven, but they project it. They displace it onto others. They disapprove of other people who do things that the one secretly wants to do. The defense within this style is called reaction formation. And what that means is you build usually a verbal case against something that you want and you project it outside and you, you accuse others of doing it. And then you condemn those others. In other words, a one man could look at a woman, feel lust in his heart, and then start talking about these, these terrible string bikini bathing suits that the young people are wearing nowadays, you know, and go into a sort of rant about it. How awful that is, and the public nudity, and why aren't there laws, and blah, blah, blah. What about these uh, navel rings? Ranting along about it, but secretly where the impulse started was with a desire to cavort with someone wearing a string bikini. So ones will do this sometimes with their own seven streak. They'll look at other people and see them as being licentious, libertine, free, not doing their duty, not following the rules, and resent them in a way. But actually it represents their own relationship to themselves and a secret desire to do what the other person is doing. There can be addictive tendencies sometimes that are played out within this connection. The psychologist John Bradshaw 
it would be a one with a, a two wing and with this kind of connection. And he talks several times in, in the literature that he's written, I believe, about the terrible tension that he put himself through being a good boy. The more good he was, the angrier he got, and the more uncomfortable he got, the more tense he got. And then this would finally result in a bout of episodic drinking, where he'd go out and he'd get drunk and he'd carouse and he'd, he'd act out. And then he'd go back and recontain himself until the next kind of outburst. Now this is exactly like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the Robert Louis Stevenson story. Dr. Jekyll is a one, and Mr. Hyde is a, a seven with an eight wing. And he's utterly libertine, and he r runs around and just does whatever he wants, and he has no impulse control. It's total id. I see it, I want it. I like this. Give it to me. And that's the low side of the connection from one to seven. You've got this little id that's inside of you that wants to get out and wants to just run wild. This also relates to what they call in Enneagram literature a trapdoor one. That's Helen Palmer's name for it, where somebody is virtuous by day and then has these other illicit, licentious episodes at night. Uh, a Jimmy Swaggart, virtuous minister during the day and then he's caught cavorting with prostitutes in a motel. And this kind of schism is also in uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where he drinks the potion, he turns into Mr. Hyde, he goes out, commits crimes and just goes wild. And then he comes back and he recontains himself and becomes Dr. Jekyll again and regrets it which we'll get to, it's the connection to four. He beats himself up and condemns himself for being a worm. Is that part of the negative motivation strategy? That yes, yeah. And it's more the connection to the low side of four, as well as something that ones tend to do anyway. There can also be a tendency to rationalize that goes with the low side of this connection. A tendency to think in a, sort of a scatterbrained way sometimes, where you're so associative that you're just jumping from one thing to another, distractible but also to blow off your own behavior in a way, to rationalize it away as well. You know, I did this because of this. You know, don't blame me. It was my childhood. The devil made me do it. And then to just displace responsibility for your behavior. It's not that usual, and it's not something you associate with the basic descriptions of ones, but I've seen it with some consistency. And also there can be a kind of theoretical quality too, where sevens a lot of times will have a philosophical streak and there'll be a kind of interest in systems and uh, an eclectic interest in connections between various subject areas that otherwise don't have much of a connection. And you'll see this occasionally in ones who are very sevenish. And on the low side of it, it brings a kind of addled, fast thinking that's not very coherent usually. Does anybody know anybody like this so far? Yeah, describing? Anyone? That sounds just like my brother and my best friend. Your brother and your best friend? Both, and they do, they're the seven-ish ones. Uh-huh. And they, their four-ish four qualities won't hit, and then it comes out privately. Uh-huh. They're also the uh, intimate or sexual subtype. Uh-huh. Yeah, and uh, the subtypes figure into these descriptions I'll be offering you as well, but it's sort of just too much material to get into. Yeah. yeah. I know a, uh, one writer, and he uh, was on a panel and I was sitting in the front row, and part of my cuff was not right, and he couldn't stand it. Yeah. He, uh -huh. he came over and just said, I can't stand that I gotta, I gotta yeah. make the cuff right. But he's got a really strong seven part. We, we had to do a satirical play, and he wrote the most biting, incredible lines, and, and he was running around hugging and kissing everybody. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. Now let me talk about the connection to four. Ones have a connection to the high and low side of four. And on the high side, it brings a access to feelings. 
an emotional familiarity and a way to get into the inner life that is quite helpful sometimes. Things can look a certain way and you can have a sense of order and you can be caught in the rules and be rigid, but emotions are contradictory a lot of the times and the inner life and the outer world don't necessarily align with each other sometimes and we're all multi-level people. Our awareness occurs on many different levels. We have different facets to ourselves and we have minds but, and we have bodies and we have hearts. You know, we have an emotional life. And so a lot of times the connection helps the development of that, a kind of inner emotionality and a sensory richness sometimes. Fours have a capacity for what they call in NLP and in other forms of psychology, synesthesia, where all your senses tend to run together, sort of like a watercolor in the rain. A sensitive four could come into a new situation and they could feel the vibration in the room, the mood in the room, it could give them a feeling, the feeling could conjure up images, the images could remind them of a song from the past, the song could bring uh, smells and taste with it, and the taste could bring another feeling, and so on. They have the capacity to just have the, the senses run together in a continuous sort of way. It's like the raw material of creativity. Ones will sometimes develop a certain amount of this in their connection to four, and it's a useful thing. It brings a certain creative capacity. And there are a lot of ones who are artists. You know, you mentioned a one who is a novelist. Catherine Hepburn's a one. George Eliot, I think. Uh, maybe Jane Austen. You know, there are some ones who are artistically inclined and they live a, the life of an artist and they dedicate themselves to that. And that's, that's what matters to them. And they have an inner affinity to it as well, which is partially related to this connection to four. Also, you can discover how, how you really feel versus how you should feel, too. If you're in that rigidity within the one style, then, you know, you might have a conflict between about how you're supposed to feel. But with this connection to four, you discover the various levels to your feeling, and maybe even that your feelings are different from the, the face you would prefer to, to offer the world or the order you would prefer to, to put on things. One man who was a, a four-ish one, he described it as, he said, sometimes I watch my wife hurt from circumstances from which my rationality would easily protect me. On the other hand, perhaps my favorite times are those when my rational barrier breaks down so I'm truly open to pain, to joy, and to her. Also, a healthy connection to the high side of four interacts somewhat with the healthy connection to seven. Just as there is greater playfulness and imagination, there's also, with the high side of four, more sensory richness, more creative ideas. Sevens and fours both have, within their core styles, I would say, the seeds of creative strategies. Fours are especially good at what you call pattern recognition, where you see the difference between disparate things. You come into a new situation and you connect two things that normally don't have any kind of connection. And you can do that very easily. It just comes kind of naturally to you, uh, synthesizing. With sevens, the nature of their creativity, I would say more has to do with storytelling, with the ability to think in stories and to make sense of reality through stories. They might also have a lot of capacity for brainstorming, but as well they can uh, give things shape and narrative form and are sometimes most comfortable in talking in stories. I have one friend who's a, a writer, that's all he ever does. He just talks entirely in stories, tells story after story. So the, all of these kind of help. They help with the basic fix of the style and they help with the basic rigidity of the style. There's also an attraction to art within this style that may be latent or it may be explicit.
I mentioned not only living an artistic life, but ones who don't live artistic lives may nevertheless have a particular affinity for art or a particular need for that. And this can as well track over into needing to be out in nature, to be in circumstances that aesthetically soothe and feed you. It can be a real significant need. I've probably mentioned this in other workshops too, but one time I was working with somebody in um, Switzerland and I was talking about the value of intuition and creativity. And the man was a one, and he said, well, I don't think that I really am intuitive or creative. I think that uh, all of my processes are governed by my conscious mind. And I asked him my stock question, which is, how do you really know that? And he said, well, it's just a feeling. But <laughs> I, uh, since I knew the Enneagram and I knew about some of these connections, I knew there was something I could fish for. I knew there was something there, and I said something to him like, uh, I don't know what particular bee of illumination stung me at that moment, but I had a kind of hunch, and I said, well, what about the part of you that likes to stay up late at night and read German romantic poetry? This is one of those things you blurt out with that. <laughs> and the man looked at me, you know, and he went white, and it was like I'd caught him in a secret love of pornography or something. <laughs> he said, how did you know that? You know, I, my wife doesn't even know that, you know. But I partially knew because of the Enneagram. I knew he was a one and I knew he, somewhere he had a latent romantic streak. And this can come out in, in the form of a loving poetry, it can come a loving nature, being attracted to art. And if it's not there, if a person claims that it's not there, they may still have a tension towards it in their relationships with other people or they just may not know that it's there or they may not admit that it's there. It's like uh, some bitter person one time said, in every man, there's a dead poet whom the man survives. It's a voice of depression, I figure, but <laughs> there, there is somewhere in there something like that, and you can fish for it. If you're a therapist working with people, or if you're working, you're thinking about your own life, it's a, an affinity that you have that can be cultivated and can really become a resource. On the low side of this, when the connection is less healthy, ones can be prone to melancholy. Twos and ones both, when they get in touch with their feelings, if they've been out of touch with their feelings for a while, sometimes the first feeling they encounter is melancholy, a kind of sadness. And they could, could have tears and stuff, but there's a, almost a habit of melancholy that goes with these. The person could be dissatisfied with reality and uh, sad about how the world doesn't appreciate their efforts to reform it. There can also be a, a, a self-pitying quality sometimes implicit in this. I'm, it's like nobody understands me, nobody kind of appreciates my efforts to reform them, I don't know why. And then also, I feel a little bit like I'm an alien, I'm from another planet. I've been, like fours, we'll talk about being dropped here and raised as human, but they're really the victim of a cosmic paperwork mistake. Where you feel like you're apart from the others and you're of a different species, that kind of thing. And then there can be a melancholy tinge to it and a kind of melodrama sometimes that's associated with that. This also brings a tendency towards utopian vision or supports a tendency within the core style towards dreaming of utopias and ideal scenarios and ideal pictures and ideal renditions, ideal ways that things should be. Ones can have a propensity for that and, and it's hooked to their skill and what they're good at. But it's also sometimes fueled by a melancholy longing to live in another world a world that's not as brutal and imperfect as this one, a world where people really care about the cuffs on their pants instead of you know, just walking around in this haphazard way that ought to be outlawed. 
It probably is against the law in Singapore, by the way, which is a very utopian sort of model for a, a city-state. Also, this is tied into a nostalgia for the past sometimes. There can be a melancholy, nostalgic, forish quality for times when things were simpler. Barry Goldwater, who died a couple of years ago, who was a, a senator from Arizona, one time he said, when I was a boy, we didn't have written contracts. A man's word and a handshake was all you needed. This guy, Tom Brokaw, the newscaster, wrote this book called The Greatest Generation, romanticizing people who lived in World War II, who hadn't gotten a certain amount of recognition and approval, one presumes, but also it's viewed through a mist of nostalgia. And the idea is that times were simpler then, people were braver, there were good guys and bad guys, it was more clear-cut, and it's related to the connection to four. This can also be kind of maudlin or sentimental sometimes, too. You could have bad taste in art. I'm sorry to say, but you could. Something could be very maudlin and schmaltzy, and it could just devastate you. It could make you weep. Maybe you haven't really developed your emotional life in some way. And so something could have a melancholy tinge, and it, it would hook you, even though it's schmaltz. There can be depressive tendencies that go with this. A one can have a moroseness about them. The unhealthy connection to four brings not only that self-pitying, but also a, I'm a wretch, that kind of melodrama about the self where nobody in the world is more wretched than I. This is what happens in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. When Mr. Hyde fades away and Dr. Jekyll comes to his senses and he realized what Mr. Hyde had done in his rapacious libertine exploits the night before, Dr. Jekyll then turns fourish and self-accusative and depressed and he just beats himself up. It's like no one in the world is a worse wretch than I. I'm this deformed thing who has this nature that I can't control and it's a kind of melodrama about the self. Self-accusing, self-loathing, self-indulging, you might say, sort of scenario that the person goes into. They can be kind of emotionally overreactive when they're like this. You know, everything happens and it's... They'll use words like always and never. You know, no one in the world has ever been. It's always been this way. It always will be this way. I've never been able to be different. This sort of thing. In addition to the self-indictment, this can also set up uh, the next episode of bad behavior. What happens in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is he makes himself feel so bad and so contained and he becomes so one-ish that Mr. Hyde wants to bounce out again. And he starts to come after a while without even Dr. Jekyll having to drink the evil potion or the, the potion that turns him into Mr. Hyde. So it just bursts out and there's a relationship between the two. The more I hate myself and contain myself, and try to be good to compensate for having been bad, the more I then want to be bad the next time. So it's a loop, a cycle. Uh, and then two more things. There can be a morbidity that goes with this too, a morbid interest in death and pathology. And I can't think of a better example of this than Dr. Jack Kevorkian, the suicide doctor, the guy who helped people do assisted suicide. He not only helped them do suicides, but he was interested in death all his life. He's done paintings about death and has been a kind of death worshiper. And I think also the insane Nazi scientist, Dr. Joseph Mengele, who did all these bizarre, horrific experiments on people, I think he might have been a very fourish, morbid one in this way. And then one more thing is sometimes the longing that's implicit within fourness can be a sort of shadow. Carl Sagan, the scientist who died a few years ago, was very well known for routinely, adamantly, and categorically rejecting the possibilities that 
There could be UFOs, that we could be visited by other cultures from outer space, that there was any such thing as psychic phenomena, and just anything else you can think of that's kind of deviant. He was against it. At one time, I saw him interviewed, and he said this. His parents were dead, and he was very bonded with his parents. And the interviewer asked him, well, you're putting this stuff down all the time, saying it could never be possible. Wouldn't you like to, say, talk to your parents again through a medium? And Sagan's reply was that he would really love to talk to his parents through a medium. In fact, his yearning was so strong, he had to guard against it extra hard. And he said, quote, I would love to believe this, but I want to talk to them so much that I have to reach for extra reserves of skepticism. So you understand a, a shadow, a kind of attraction repulsion, and again, that reaction formation that I talked about. I've seen ones tyrannize people with the low side of this connection, the self-pitying part of it, and nobody understands me, that sort of aspect of it. Look how depressed I am. And they do uh, blaming and meta-blaming. I'm such a wretch, and I'm such a wretch for calling myself a wretch. And if you're a therapist, sometimes working with this, you know, it's really hard to penetrate. I do a combination of things with them, but I, I try to hang them with their own logic sometimes, and then also make them laugh. Almost exaggerate it to the point of absurdity and make it, you know, you need rapport with the person and stuff. But if you try to get into the penetrating the blaming and meta-blaming, boy, it's just endless. They can just go on and on. And if you try and take it away from them, they can perceive it as a struggle for control, a power struggle. Let me talk about ones with a nine wing. On the high side, there's a kind of coolness. And ones with a nine wing, they'll have a particular ability to be objective in some way that is untainted by feelings and is cool and moderate. You're able to see the big picture, but dispassionately so. And it's a real skill. You could be socially courageous in a way in that you could make unpopular decisions, even decisions that have negative connotations to them, and be able to do that in a way that still works out pretty well for everyone. We have a governor in Oregon where I live who is like this. He's the one with a nine wing. He's an ex-MD and he's become governor. And one of the things that he did was set up an Oregon healthcare system that makes real hard decisions about when to deny care and when to offer care. And they've got limited resources, but they're trying to do something. And he wanted to do what he could, but there are still some things like heart transplants and stuff like that that they're really not able to cover. They just can't manage it. And he just laid it out and spearheaded it and brought it into being. And for what it is, it's quite a fine thing. He's also taken a stand on assisted suicide, which is a hot button cultural issue that everybody reacts to. And he just believes in people having the choice and has stuck to his guns. And you see that sometimes with the high side of the swing. There can be a slightly impersonal quality and a slower pace to them sometimes. Ones with a nine wing are often less visual than ones with a two wing. They're more auditory and kinesthetic in this manner that I mentioned and that brings a sort of slower pace and tempo to the way the person thinks, talks, and makes decisions and maybe even moves. There's a kind of even rhythmic tempo to it rather than the tempo I'm demonstrating right now, where I'm sort of more in a visual mode and I'm talking a lot faster and you can visualize and see things in your mind's eye a lot faster than you can speak. But if you're thinking more in words, you tend to talk in an even, cadenced, auditory rhythm and it's slower. A lot of people, when they read, they'll talk to themselves as they read, they'll say the words inside their head. And that means they can only read as fast as they can talk. 
And when they teach people how to speed read, they teach them how to go into a visual mode and bypass the step where they're repeating the words to themselves. And that's why they can then suddenly read 10,000 words a minute. They're reading in a different way. So ones with nine wings have this more auditory kinesthetic quality. There can be a dryness to them, emotional constriction sometimes. Uh, an affinity for art and social interaction and stuff like that can keep them uh, loosened up and juiced up. There's a modest unpretentiousness that goes with this as well, a plainness. If you think about the Amish, the Shakers, and communities where their utopian ideal is to live uh, in the century before last, essentially, that gives you a feeling for it. Someone who is a one with a nine wing is Harrison Ford, the actor, who has a certain plainness to his manner, although he's a, you know, a relatively elegant guy, but it's an elegant plainness. He built a house in Montana, built it personally because he's a carpenter, and he has what they call perfect plane, which is where you can look at a board and tell if it's even slightly not horizontal, and you don't need one of those little planes you know, with a bubble in it because you can do it with your eye, that kind of precision. But uh, somebody described the house that he built as this beautiful, elegant shaker mansion. In other words, it's beautifully appointed, but it's, but it's plain in some fundamental way, sparse. And you see some plain dressers with this as well, ones with nine wings. They'll dress for functionality, and their social presentation will be not something that they're real conscious of a lot of the time. Oh, and another example of this is Ralph Nader who is a one with a nine wing and still drives the same car he's always driven and lives in a little apartment and he wears drab, ill-fitting suits. He's become a millionaire through stock holdings, which is presumably somewhat embarrassing to him, but that has never been his intention. He's been involved in social service all his life, but with this plain, rendered down, almost emotionally constricted quality. And I got a great quote from Ralph Nader, apropos of practicality uh, being highly valued. He says that he gets invited to dinner often, and when he's had a good dinner and he wants to compliment the cook, he has one particular thing that he always tells them. We don't know if the cooks understand what a compliment this is. What he says is, when I go to someone's house for dinner and I want to compliment the host on their dinner, I tell them it's nutritious. <laughs> As I always say, if it's nutritious, it's delicious. So no ostentation, an emphasis on plainness, and an emphasis on functionality, but within that, a specialty. When ones with this wing get more unhealthy, one of the things that you begin to notice is draconian behavior and talk and schemes. It's almost like the dark side of utopia. In Singapore, it's illegal to walk naked in your own apartment. Illegal. Because somebody might see you through the windows. You know, there goes the neighborhood. In New Zealand, which also has some one-ishness running through it as a culture, people get together and practice earthquake and fire drills for fun. This is the young people do this. And I guess it's a great social outlet. It's a way to meet girls, you know. You get that kind of thing. But there can also be perfectionistic expectations that are impossible to meet, that are held and they're abstract. Ones with nine wings, especially if they're introverted, can seem like fives. Often when they are confusable with fives, it turns out they had a five father or a five mother. And they can get into abstract, intellectualized thinking that has no human content, and they may not be particularly good thinkers. I mean, they could be rigorous thinkers, it just depends on the individual. But there'll be some, they're not 
comprehensive thinkers the way fives are. They're more thinkers along the lines towards a moral purpose. And so that has its limitations. And they could also get into ideal solutions to social problems that don't really have any human content in them. There was a, an idiot who wrote a book about 10 years ago called The Bell Curve about how blacks had lower IQs than whites and based on the IQs it was a, pr a proof of the, of the whites cultural superiority. He never did say what his own IQ was. <laughs> and it was one of these things where the guy started out with an argument that sounded vaguely logical to him and then he went on for 400 pages and by the time he came to the end of it he'd argued something insane. For one thing, IQ points on average have gone up 25 points since the 1920s, which means that it's environmental. And then there's all kinds of ways in which it's administered and you know biases, whites versus blacks, and all of which he ignored. He just started with this idea and then he just ran it out to its insane conclusion. That's a stupid right winger. On the other side, you could have stupid left wing thinking in the same way. I don't know if anybody's ever seen Noam Chomsky talk. He's a famous linguist and social activist, and he's a social subtype, and he's a one with a nine wing. And he will grab onto a liberal argument and carry it to the nth degree and go wrong with confidence. And one of the, the famous examples of this was years ago, there was a Holocaust denier in France who wrote a book denying, once again, that the Holocaust ever happened. And Chomsky got involved in it because it was a free speech issue. And he wound up making a speech and writing the introduction to this guy's Holocaust denial book saying that at least this guy has the right to come out and say that the Jews were never killed and the whole thing's a media hoax because that's the essence of free speech which we want to protect. Now, that sounds pretty good on paper, but actually it's hounded him for years. He's been denying it ever since because it was so inflammatory and the book was so awful and grotesque in its arguments. And so you could do it either way. It's not just a matter of politics. It's more of a matter of grabbing on to an idea and then taking it to a draconian extreme. We have trouble with drug dealers? No problem. Let's just round them up. We'll put them in the Grand Canyon. We'll bulldoze the damn thing. <laughs> Problems with students bringing guns to school? Charlton Heston's solution, head of the NRA, also a one with a nine wing. Just arm all the teachers. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's the kind of mentality that you get into, a draconian and unemotional, dissociated. And then one with a two wing, it's different. It's almost like the, a difference in temperature between coolness and warmth. Uh, with a two wing, there's much more emotionality. And on the high side, it brings an interpersonal warmth, brings a, a sympathetic affinity for people. You feel like people are your species. You don't feel apart from them fundamentally or, or dissociated from them or curious about them and wondering at them as though looking at them as specimens. There can be also a kind of intensity, a kind of passion. If they were an artist, they could be passionate about what they did. If you've ever seen John Bradshaw, the psychologist, talk, he's pretty fiery, gets real wound up when he's talking and gets real excited. And there can be a kind of emphasis on the emotional that is different. With a nine wing, it's more like the emphasis is on body feelings, more like that auditory and kinesthetic tendency within the nine wing. The kinesthetics are more body oriented like physical kinesthetics rather than emotional kinesthetics. With a two-wing, it's more you're much more in touch with your own emotionality. Or there tends to be a little more of a visual tendency with this. Partially, I think it's because you're in a sort of relating mode where you're much more aware of how you look. And there can also be a kind of vanity that goes with it. 
and also people who have what they're now calling emotional intelligence, where you have the capacity to switch places with other people and understand things from their point of view. To some degree, that's done with shifting your eyes, you know, taking on a different visual perspective. They can have also humanistic tendencies. And instead of this draconian dissociated thing that I was talking about with the unhealthy expression of the nine wing, on the high side of the two wing, your humanism is tempered by realism. In other words, you sort of want the best for people. You want to contribute something to the world. You want to make a difference, but you're realistic enough to know that we're all works in progress, everything's imperfect, and you just have to start from the imperfection of things rather than rail against the fact that they're not the way you think they should be. And a quality sometimes of wanting to contribute, wanting to improve life for other people, wanting to offer things to the people around you, a sort of generosity and a sort of support that you can give. A kind of nice quality in friendship, too. There can be a, a steadfast quality that goes with it. If a person's less healthy with the two-wing, there can be a volatility that starts to get the better of them. They can be kind of reactionary, and they can be kind of hot-headed, and they can't listen to something without reacting to it. There's probably not a better example of this than Dr. Laura Schlesinger, who you hear if you listen to her radio show reacting all over the place in this hot sort of way, this nervous, agitated, pissed off sort of way. You know, I listened to that show once and it seemed to be the formula was based on people's fascinations with train wrecks. Somebody would call up and then say, Dr. Laura, I slept with my wife's sister and now she's pregnant and I'm really sorry and I didn't mean to and what, I, what do I do now? And then her job then is to blast the person. And you, you sort of wait for this moment when she nails the person. And they pre-screen these people to be you know, willy-nilly, apathetic, pathetic, you know, seeking advice and you know, some sort of external confirmation. And then the person says this thing and then Laura says, you asshole, you know, or whatever she says, I don't know. But she just whams them, you know, just beats them up, basically. And then at the end, the person says, oh, it's so nice, Dr. Laura, to find somebody who really knows what's right, you know. And, <laughs> But actually, the adamance that the person is manifesting is a defense, is an unhealthy expression of oneness in the way that I was talking about before. The person has to be so sure. They are so adamant and they are so insistent and they are so hot under the collar about the veracity of their own argument that it's actually a defense. And perhaps they want to act out as well, but won't let themselves, and so they're containing it. Wing also brings a certain kind of hypocrisy, too, I would say, the low side of the expression of it. Uh, I'd say Hillary Clinton would be a one with a two-wing, and there's a great inconsistency in her behavior over the years. And it sometimes is reinforced by the social subtype, which is uh, true with both Dr. Laura and Hillary Clinton, where there's a kind of do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do attitude, and a pridefulness sometimes. The rationalization is, well, I'm doing so much for other people, and I'm trying so hard and I've sacrificed so much that what's a little sweetheart deal where I make $100,000 on cattle futures? Or so what if I act out and go cavort in a motel with a stranger or something? The greater sacrifice that I make is in the service of rightness. And so the person will rationalize it sometimes that way. And within their scolding quality, there can be a particular propensity for uh, hypocrisy. There is a therapy called reality therapy. One of the things that I've come across in working with the Enneagram is when I read about therapies and the originator of the therapy, about four years ago, it just struck me right between the eyes. My God, they're talking about their Enneagram styles. 
new psychotherapies come out all the time and they're usually sold as things that work for all people at all times. You know, this is the new solution for you. And it, they present a model of psychology that is thought to be about the human psyche. Turns out almost every single time it's about the psyche of the creator of the style and the creator's Enneagram style in particular. It's just the damnedest thing. Once you start seeing it, you can't not see it. And there's a whole therapy created by one with a two wing called reality therapy, which basically has a lot to do with scolding and hectoring and denying the reality of the inner life. And if you know he's a one with a two wing and you read it, it's an absolute riot. In his uh, uh, introductory book, he dispenses with the whole notion, Blasser, yeah, that anybody has ever traumatized or has any problems left over from childhood. And all through, he has a characteristic uh, combination of judgment and compassion. They're merged together. So he's sympathetic, but he's got rules. And so one of the things he says is, irresponsible people, now wrongly labeled mentally ill, must clearly understand that they must help themselves regardless of what has happened to them in the past. And we should be the last to deny that they have suffered. And then he goes on to argue that whatever happened to them in the past, there's no such thing as a psychological trauma. The real problem is irresponsibility. And if you can just cure irresponsibility, then you're on your way. I think it really ties in also with what Ellis did, Albert Ellis, and it's tying in with what's really popular right now too, which is cognitive. Right. And it's very limited. It's very limited, but on the other hand, cognitive therapy, you wouldn't want to do it with ones necessarily, because it'd be like giving cookies to the cookie monster. But other styles really benefit from cognitive therapy, especially styles like six and four who get caught up in their illusions and stuff like that that way. You need to be eclectic and use Yes. And cognitive therapy, Albert Ellis is another hectorer too. He's a one with a two wing and he'll sit and he'll interview a client and then he'll start dispensing advice. And there are famous films of him, you know, just sitting there shaking his finger, talking about what they should do and how they should clean this up and they should do that. And blah. You know, the people receive it according to how they receive it, but it's a, it'd be a limited way to do therapy. And then let's see, a couple more things and then we'll stop. No, I think that's about it. All the connections are there somehow. And they may be obvious or they may be not obvious. The person may be aware of them or not aware of them. Or they may favor one connection and push another one away, but they still have it. And they have attention to other people maybe who have that Enneagram style. And so it's there somehow in my experience. And again, the Enneagram is a, a model, a description. It's not a theory, but it's a very elegant, powerful, complicated description that attempts to describe something that's already there in people, I would say. Okay, well, let's take a break.